The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaronsmeely, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Imagine you're a mom, and you and your partner have decided you're not going to work outside the home. You're taking care of the kids. You dropped out of the workforce when the math started to seem to make sense to do so. Childcare is just so expensive. As your kids get older, you miss working outside the home. You feel an itch to tackle new challenges, meet new people, have adult time. You're kind of bored. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, a friend of a friend DMs you on Instagram with an exciting opportunity to sell products to other women like you. Our guest today fell prey to this kind of multi-level marketing, or MLM, organization. And she rocked it. She was a million-dollar seller. She won a car. But something that felt like it could be the answer to many problems actually contributed to many more, including substance abuse and mental health issues. Emily Paulson is a sobriety coach, author, and former MLM worker. She wrote the book, Hey Hun!, Sales, Sisterhood, Supremacy, and the Other Lies Behind Multilevel Marketing. Here's her story. Okay, so I was reflecting on the threads of this conversation and what I wanted to hit on, and I was laughing because I was thinking, you know, on the face of it, this episode flips the script on the typical guest, because most of the people that we have on The Anxious Achiever are people with big titles in corporate America, or, you know, they've started companies and pursue sort of like a traditional corporate ladder role and experience a tremendous amount of anxiety and mental health challenge that goes along with that. Your work and your time in multi-level marketing was at a time when you were technically out of the workforce. You were technically a stay-at-home mom of your five kids. And yet my experience of reading about you and your colleagues in the multi-level marketing scheme was that this is the most anxiety-provoking environment I have ever read about. It is like the epitome of anxious cheeverness <laughs> in so many ways. Yeah. And that's a big theme of your book. Yes. Things are not always as they seem, right? It is. I mean, looking yeah. back, especially, I'm sure you talk about this a lot, like you don't see things when you're in them. And then looking back, you're like, how did I tolerate that? It's a literal nightmare. Yes. You even have a chapter called The Party Never Ends, But Neither Does the Anxiety. Could you start us out and define multi-level marketing? Yeah. So, you know, everybody's familiar with sales and sales is just that, sales. Multi-level marketing, it's the multi-level that's important. It is when you are not an actual employee of a company, you're a contractor and you're quote unquote job is to recruit other people to join that company. 
You also sell products, but the money is really made through recruiting people to join in as contractors for the company, spreading the message of the company, recruiting more people, and yes, selling the products while you're doing that. The products are just really a ruse to get people in the scheme. They're essentially pyramid schemes with product. Right. So you have what's called an upline and a downline. Can you define that? Yes. So, you know, in a traditional job, you have a boss, you may have managers, you know, all those people in those managerial layers get a salary, they get benefits, yada, yada, yada. In multi-level marketing, you join typically a friend. You join uh, maybe your sister, your mom, your you know friend, maybe just a random girl who comes in your DMs. That is now your sponsor, your upline. Different MLMs have different names for them, but essentially that person gets a cut of any sales, any recruiting that you do. And then you basically do the same thing. You go and recruit people and those become your downline. And then those people recruit people. So you kind of have this genealogy tree, (laughs) upline and downline of people who make money off of you and people you make money off of. And the company pads the products because they're basically paying people cuts of every sale. So it seems like the products are very, very expensive compared to what you could buy at Amazon. Oh, absolutely. Compared to what you could buy anywhere, you know, all of the payment is built in. And really the money that the person, like say I sold a product, the money I got from that product was very little because my upline got some, their upline got some, their upline all the way up the chain. And then the company itself got the biggest majority. And so the people making money off these product sales are not, you know, your friends, your neighbors who are selling these products. It is really the parent company and these few people at the top who have huge downlines of people. And, you know, it's just all of those little pennies really add up. Really add up. I want to go back. You were trained as a chemist. Mm -hmm. Why did you decide to become a stay-at-home mom? Gosh, you know, there's so much built in here, I think, that I could talk about with let's, let's do it. The patriarchy and the, <laughs> so I started college actually as a music major. I played the flute and then I took chemistry class. You know, I had a required science class and I just loved it. And I kind of at the time thought, Oh, I don't know if, you know, getting a job as a, you know, a flutist like that might be, I don't know if that's going to happen. You know, at the time I just thought, you know, what's a good job? And I'm like, I really enjoy this. And so I went into this pharmacy track. And after a while I did an internship and I realized like I didn't want to count pills. Like pharmacy wasn't really for me, but I loved chemistry. I loved being in the lab. I loved doing research. So that's what drew me into that field. So I got my first job out of college and it was at a, you know, Japanese company. And it was, you know, in the U.S., but a a Japanese-led company. I was the only woman Mm. who was working there. Part of it, there was a language barrier and some microaggressions with, you know, as far as me being the only female, there were a lot of white men who worked there. Mm -hmm. I had a situation where there was a guy kind of pursuing me. Then I took it to my HR manager and you know, just said, hey, this guy just won't stop like picking on me and trying to hit on me and ask me out. And I keep turning him down. And it's just making the work situation really difficult. And he told me, you know, he'd take care of it. He talked to him, but that I was a pretty young thing. (sighs) 
This your HR person said this. This is my HR person. And so this was like within the first six months I was working there. So I was already like very defeated. I loved the work. I loved what I was doing. But the environment was so anxiety producing. And, you know, there was kind of this weird understanding because actually there was one woman who worked there when I started and she felt pushed out because she was like passed over for things. And and I think there was part of it in the culture. And I don't want to speak on, you know, other cultures, but that it was weird that I was like working outside of the home. <laughs> you know, some of the upper management would like speak Japanese around me, even though they knew English. It was just a very toxic environment. Mm-hmm. And so eventually I decided I'm going to go back to school because that was comfortable for me. <laughs> That's what I knew. That's what I'd been doing for years. And I got my master's in teaching and I became a chemistry teacher mm-hmm. and then I got pregnant. And I mean, one of the reasons I went into teaching was that I thought it was a very flexible career for moms. Mm. And it turns out there's no flexible career for moms. Um, <laughs> spoiler <laughs> spoiler alert. Sense. Spoiler alert. You know, because by the time, you know, I was married at that point. I, of course, you know, a lot of things were happening behind the scenes this time. Got married. And my husband's job, you know, he traveled. It was much more higher paying than my job was and my new teaching job was. So it just made sense childcare-wise on paper that I would stay home. And initially, we kind of thought like, oh, I'll stay home for the first year and then I'll go back to work. Because again, you don't know what you don't know. And then you come to find out like a one-year-old is actually needs, you know, (laughs) more attention than a baby. And, you know, we just didn't know what we didn't know. And after a few years, like my, we had a few more kids and my teaching license, you know, lapsed. Just the hoops I would have had to jump through to go back to either working in a lab or working as a teacher, it got so much more difficult. You know, fast forward, we had five kids and we knew we were done and we were kind of settled in the place where we were going to live for, you know, a long time. We weren't moving for my husband's job anymore. That's when it really like, gosh, now is the time. And then I was kind of stuck. Mm. And that's really, you know, sort of where the story of your multi-level marketing career opens. And I think that vulnerability probably was what drew you to joining what you call rejuvenate the skincare multi-level that you talk about in the book, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because the other thing going on when you're a mom, you know, you, it can be very isolating, like working, not working doesn't matter. Like you really feel like you're surrounded by people all the time, but like you're kind of on an island because, you know, your own kids have their own special needs. Your family has this, it's like this little organism that you don't necessarily know how to keep alive all the time, right? (laughs) It's, it's the sacred science. Like nobody can crack how to be the perfect mom. And so, you know, you have always have like a few close friends you can confide in, but just like you can't hack a motherhood. And so I think there's this level of feeling alone. And and that's really where I was. I was like, okay, I've had all these kids and I've felt like I've had this purpose this whole time because you know, I had a baby and like, then I would have a toddler and then I get pregnant again and then repeat, 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 you know, now we're done. And now what is my purpose? Like, okay, just raising these kids. Like, I get that that sounds like a big deal, but I just felt like I wanted a, a purpose outside of the family. I wanted to contribute in some way. I just wanted more. And I felt very isolated in a weird way, even though I was surrounded by kids all the time. 
So you went out for drinks with your friend Becky. Yeah. So when my friend, you know, actually, and, and I always say like, oh, I joined a friend, but like, I don't think I'd ever spoken to her, actually. You know, we went to the same high school, very like sweet person. She was several years younger than me. She reached out on social media, was like, hey, I'm going to be in your area. Would you like to get together for drinks? And and so when I was in that place where I was just feeling like I'm on this island, I'm alone, I knew that my husband was going to be in town and I could be available. Like he could watch the kids while I go out. I mean, I jumped at the chance. She could have been doing anything, <laughs> selling anything. <laughs> I just was so desperate for like a night out. Yeah. That's where I was at that point. It's like, I will meet you and talk to you. And like, you're from my hometown. It's something from my past, like my child-free years. I don't know. It was something like this clinging to my youth kind of. Yeah. So I jumped at the chance and then I went out to meet her for, for wine and she was meeting other, you know, women in this organization. And again, it was like, oh, wow, all of these instant friends. They all look happy. They were like dressed cute, you know, trendy. And it just looked so aspirational. Looking back, what sales techniques did she use on you that night that got you curious? Oh, man. I mean, the whole thing. First of all, I think the overarching theme is like, my unpaid labor was holding up my whole family. And so I was used to unpaid labor, right? So that is weaponized in MLMs because you're told like, just post on social media or you see their posts on social media. You see all of this unpaid labor and you think, oh, that's easy. I do that anyway. So that's just built in. So that was already something I went into thinking, oh, I'm already home. Right. I'm already, you know, this might be something I could do, Right. So, of course, the wine, <laughs> that's like number one. <laughs> we'll get to the wine later. <laughs> yeah. So that was a tactic. So when I got there, again, there were already people there, people who could offer testimonials of not only the products, but the scheme itself, you know, who could offer their how it's changed their lives. And it was many stories that were, again, those vulnerability pieces like mine, like, oh, you know, I was home with my kids and gosh, I do this now and my skin's never looked better. And, or, you know, I got divorced and I was lonely and this gave me an instant family. It was just ringing endorsements kind of off the bat. And then once she got really talking to me about, you know, clearly she wanted me to join, clearly she wanted me to buy the products or, you know, whatever, I, I knew that. You know, it was really spoken as if it was a gift to me hmm. instead of being like, hey, will you join me because I will earn money off of you? It was never phrased that way, <laughs> even though that's what's happening. It was, you know, gosh, I've seen you on social media. You're so pretty. You have such great connections. I mean, you could get all this product for free because I was like, oh, these are cool products. I, you know, I, I really was interested in like trying new stuff. And, you know, I'm a total sucker for like the things that come in my feed anyway. Like that's just, you know, I'm like, ooh, the, or the things on the end cap at the store. Like mm -hmm. this is my personality. I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, sure, I'll try that thing. So she could see that I was already interested in that. And so she's like, you know, the best way to, to get these products at a discount is to join as a consultant. And so then that got me asking questions. And it was almost as if all of my intuitive objections that she knew I was going to have were just squashed immediately. Because the first thing I said was, you know, do I have to post on social media? 
And it was very much like, oh, you can do whatever you want with this. It was very open, like, oh, no, you can post, you can not post, you can do whatever you want with this. They use the term that you can fill in the nooks and crannies of your time, oh, right, with yes. the business. Yes. And that, you know, you can use whatever sales techniques you want. You can just buy it for yourself. You never have to do a thing. Like all these things that sound too good to be true. And they, they are. But, you know, I, I asked questions and I was like, you know, I just don't feel right to reaching out to friends and family. And her answer was very much like, oh, I felt that way too. You will feel weird about it, but that's the way like to get results. <laughs> so that it was almost preempted when I did then eventually go reach out to people or I did eventually have someone to say no. I already had these responses so that I was like, oh, I was told this would feel weird and it does. So I'm just going to keep going, right? <laughs> it wasn't as if any of my objections were actually addressed. They were just kind of squashed or talked around. It was a lot of smoke and mirrors. But I kind of thought like, what's the worst that could happen? And it's very much like, you know, you could do this. And if you don't do anything with it, you'll have some great products. And I thought, you know, what the heck? I, I think I knew so little about it that I kind of ran with that ignorance in a way. <laughs> and I think ultimately the fact that she was someone I knew who like she was from my hometown. I saw her post on social media and it seemed like maybe there was a chance that this could be something. And if it wasn't, no big deal. I just thought it was a very easy thing to do. And it turns out you were really good at it quickly. Why do you think you were good at it? There's a few reasons. So first of all, very, very few people actually make it right? The very, very small percentage. But if you look at the small percentage, they all have this very same set of circumstances. They have money, <laughs> which I had, you know, I had a husband with a good income, a good job. So I had money to spend on things I didn't need. <laughs> I also had a very large network of people who also had money. It was a, you know, upper middle class area that I lived in. I had a lot of kids, which meant a lot of kids who have friends who have moms who, you know, need stuff. So I just had a big network and there were not a lot of people in my particular area who knew about this company, who were using it, who were selling it. And so all those three things have to be there, right? All of those things have to be available to get to that top of the pyramid, but it doesn't mean you'll get there. It just means like those are the common denominators. So it was that and just dumb luck, just dumb luck, honestly. And I think the fact that I was quote unquote successful up front kept me going because mm -hmm. I thought this works, right? Because I had success from the beginning. I just kept going and I assumed other people could achieve that too. Are you extroverted? Like, because there's a lot of, I mean, as I read the description of, of what you had to do, both in person and on social media, as an introvert with social anxiety, I just thought like this would shut me down and have me locked in my closet. And the sheer amount of outreach and energy and sort of convincing that it takes, is that a part of your personality? Is that sort of bubbly extroversion? That's such an interesting question because, you know, again, I was drinking at this time. Mm. I have come to find out that I am not an extroverted. I'm a, I'm an extroverted introvert. Like I won't be the first one to talk, but once you get me in a conversation, I'll talk to you all day. <laughs> I don't like small talk. I recharge alone. 
but yet I love to have people over. I love to entertain. I love friendships, but like I need downtime. That's what I've come to find out that, that I am. But at the time, people would have described me as a party girl hmm. because I, you know, I really, I drank to like lower those inhibitions. And when I went out, I went out. So <laughs> it almost gave me a reason to talk to people. It gave me a reason to socialize. You know, obviously I was craving connection. I was craving some sort of like deeper connection with people, community. And I thought this was the ticket out. And so it was like, I used that social lubricant of alcohol. I went out more. And when I drank, just the floodgates opened and I would say and do anything. Right. So, so no, I guess long story short, I, I'm not an extrovert, but this gave me a reason to be one. So I want to fast forward a little bit because I want to get to the point where you started feeling the anxieties that the people in your downline and your upline, the anxieties that were sort of addressed or even preyed upon by this business model. Like what screamed out at me was that this is a technique of manipulation that Praise on our vulnerabilities, on our insecurities, on our anxieties, on our boredom, mm. and is just so skillful at making us work hard to try to get rid of that anxiety, which is frankly not unlike corporate America or entrepreneurship. Like it's not mm -hmm. that different. Yeah. I mean, there's again so many layers there, but I think. It's the hustle culture, like grind, right? The, the grind mentality and the glamorization of it a little bit that I think we're already built with that. We already see it. And we think that money fixes things. And so we'll do whatever we need to, to like chase money. And we'll do whatever we need to do to fix whatever situation we're in that feels uncomfortable. So when you are in an MLM, you're already primed for those sob stories to become your success stories because that's what you hear. Even from the outset, like, oh, I was bored and I joined this and now I'm not bored. Like they can be very benign. They can be really targeting your insecurities. Like, oh, I had terrible acne and now I use these products and now I sell them. Now I look wonderful or I lost the baby weight or whatever. You're primed with those. You listen to the stories of people who I, I was a shy kindergarten teacher and now I'm a six-figure earner. Right. So you feel like this company, this business, this whatever is like the ticket to the thing, whatever, that anxiety, that thing in the back of your head, that insecurity, this is the ticket to like fix it. And when you believe that, which I will tell you that I believed like the sky is blue, that this helped my life. Like this was the, the best gift I've ever gotten. And I really wanted to offer that to other people. And that's really why I think it spreads because there's so many endorsements and so many, again, aspirational stories that make you think, oh, this could really help my financial situation. This could really help my, you know, fill in the blank. It It's like the cure for whatever ails you. And in pops into your story, Kimberly. <laughs> like like a version of Glinda the Good Witch, except she's not really a good witch. She's kind of a bad witch coming into Oz. I want you to tell us about Kimberly and the sort of totemic aspirational role she played 
But she's also kind of like an evil queen bee. She's fascinating to me, but I, I feel like her role was very purposeful for getting you into the program and preying on those anxieties. Oh, 100%. So, you know, Kimberly is an amalgamation of lots of different personalities, right? So I guess that's the difficult part is that, you know, nobody's all good or bad. Right. Everyone who seems wonderfully, you know, wonderful person still employs these tactics and then teaches them to you and you employ these tactics, right? So Kimberly is really just the personification of all of these bad like <laughs> tactics and characteristics of, of all these people. But those people, the people who are at the pinnacle, the people who are earning, you know, a million dollars or whatever a year or sometimes like a month, like like what? ungodly amounts of money. Oh, so much money. They are necessary because they, again, the stories you see are the 0.001% of stories. Right. And if those don't exist, people aren't going to strive for anything. They are the ones who truly hold up the pyramid. And they are typically the people who got in first, like they were the first three consultants mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you'll see them, you know, they'll be in the company for the entire reign of the company. You'll see them on every leader trip every year. You'll see them on stage every year. And they are necessary. And everybody repeats what they do. Everything's duplicated down the pyramid because what other model do you have? <laughs> it's like, okay, she's the tippity top number one earner in the company. And here's the things she's telling us to do. So obviously we're going to do those things. You have no other option because the 99.7% you know, of people <laughs> below are all not up there. They're all losing money. And that person is always asked to speak. That person is always the face of everything. So it's it's very difficult, even when you know it's not possible to achieve, mm-hmm. to like ignore what they're saying. And you ultimately just want to be in proximity with them. You want to be in their sphere. It was so funny because we all experience this. And I think especially in entrepreneurial culture, there's always that person. I think that there is that allure and the truly aspirational message of our hustle culture, which is if I only work harder, I can have the buttery leather bag. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I have. I, yeah. And I think, you know, it's celebrity culture, right? Mm-hmm. But like we know as people, like, I'm not an actress. I'm like, I'll never be like a celebrity, but gosh, I could be a celebrity here. It almost seems in comparison, like, gosh, this is possible. Right. And you even got to like walk a version of the red carpet. Yeah. So I want you to talk us through how you cultivated this FOMO using social Mm -hmm. media. Can you talk us through a day? Because I think it would be interesting for the audience to just hear a little bit about how you literally used weaponized social media to cultivate the Kimberliness of this all. Yeah. I mean, everything is used as a tactic to get people to join you. You're selling yourself. You're selling this lifestyle. And you're supposed to be on all the time. And so it's all about like, hey, I'm at the park right now, whatever it is. Like, I'm so lucky that I have a job that's so flexible Mm. or 
yay, we're on the beach. You know, I'm so happy that my side gig allows me to work from anywhere and pay for this or or whatever. And it can be, you know, a lot of it's fake because (laughs) if you really did a profit loss statement, you would know that, you know, the cost of the trip and like, you know, you're, you're not really making that much money. It's not really paying for it, whatever. But it's all about selling the story and getting people to join the lifestyle and like, there's room for you. Don't let your uh, reservations hold you back. That's one thing looking back again too, that just that course of control and the belief, like I, again, I really believed I had this gift and I couldn't understand why everyone didn't want it. Mm. And you assume that people, if they're not joining or if they have anything to say, it must be because they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And so you must be on this evangelizing mission to explain why not only is this multi-level marketing good, but why this particular company is good and why it's it's almost like the saviorism. I, I can't describe it any other way. Well, you draw in a lot of threads of both white supremacy culture and frankly, Christian evangelism, which both mm-hmm. have roots in multi-level marketing. A hundred percent. I mean, multi-level marketing wouldn't exist without evangelism. You know, the people who started Amway were devout Calvinists. And so that and every company has modeled itself off of Amway. So <laughs> there is a thread of Christianity everywhere. And and when people ask me like, oh, hey, you mentioned that there's anti-Semitism and MLM. What do you mean? It is because it's the absence of everything else but Christianity. <sighs> it is assumed that you pray to a God, a Christian God. It is assumed that you have a, you know, female male marriage uh you know and then you have kids and you know all these things are assumed from this very like christian template the linkedin podcast network is sponsored by tiaa in the last 100 years we've seen financial markets swing new currencies come and go decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee quite simply isn't enough so more than a retirement plan TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. If you're interested in the story behind the business headlines, check out Big Technology Podcast, my weekly show that features in-depth interviews with CEOs, researchers, and reformers in business and technology. Hi, I'm Alex Kantrowitz. I'm a longtime journalist, CNBC contributor, and the host of the show. I empty my Rolodex every Wednesday to bring you awesome episodes. So go check out Big Technology Podcast. It's available on all podcast apps. I'd love to have you as a listener. I want to talk about your drinking and your sobriety. But first, I want to talk about how you started to get anxious Mm. and what started keeping you up at night because a lot of the story as you tell it is is the sense that you're on a hamster wheel and you're constantly trying to post and motivate your downline who aren't making money mm-hmm. and keeping everyone happy and trying to cover up from too many nights where you don't remember what was going on. Yeah. Like when did you start to feel that anxiety? So I mean I would say that I used alcohol for my anxiety since I picked up alcohol. Which was when? Which was, I was 14, the first time I had a drink. Wow. And there was this feeling like, oh, oh, this works. And, you know, of course, if you know anything about alcohol, like it works until it doesn't, right? It it takes the edge off anxiety and then it makes anxiety much worse. So I started on this hamster wheel 
from a very young age. And there were times when my drinking was more or less, you know, college, whatever, like it didn't ever look that different from mm-hmm. other people. And you had five kids. Right, exactly. So, you know, I, I, I didn't drink when I was pregnant and like I might drink a little in between, but like I, I think in a way having so many pregnancies back to back really held off my, my drinking mm-hmm. because once I stopped being pregnant and was like, Oh, I've got my body back now. It kind of took off from there. And with all of the anxieties of motherhood and everything going on in the world and, you know, that nightly glass of wine was there. It was always there. And then it became one or two, became a whole bottle. You know, it just, the more my anxiety went up, the more I drank because that was, you know, when you use something for anxiety and you have more anxiety, you're going to use more of it. So in a way, that is what allowed me to continue doing a lot of things I was doing in the MLM and ignore a lot of red flags, just continuing to drink away all of this intuition, all of these feelings. But then it started to get really out of control. It really, really sent me towards rock bottom. I, I had a lot of moments where I thought, you know, really 2015, 2016, I, I was like, okay, this is, this is kind of bad. And, you know, <laughs> drinking a lot and blacking out more, but like nothing quote unquote bad had happened. I hadn't been arrested. I hadn't, you know, fill in the blank, like all those things you think you need to do to hit rock bottom. And then all those things started happening. I did get arrested. I did get a DUI. I did end up in the hospital. All of these things started to happen. And yet then I couldn't stop. And I really wondered, like, how would I continue this lifestyle, this boss babe lifestyle, if I wasn't partying, if I wasn't drinking, I I was in this weird, like stuck place. And you got a cancer diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So, and that actually, you know, that was 2015 and that, you know, luckily I had surgery. I, you know, got uh, cured, (laughs) you know, I got healed from that. And, but yet the pain management that led me to drinking more. Mm. Like that was one of the things that escalated my drinking even more. 2016 was a really, really tough, tough year. And I write about it a lot in the book because it was so hard once those things started happening and then I couldn't stop. And that was scary. And you were so high functioning. Mm-hmm. Seemingly. It's, Seemingly. it's funny saying that now <laughs> when I talk like, oh, you, there's people who are like, oh, I had no idea you drank. And then there are people who are like, uh, yeah, no kidding. Like we, <laughs> we saw, <laughs> we saw the drinking because I, once I wasn't drinking anymore, once mm-hmm. I stopped drinking, I realized all the things I was missing. I realized all the things I wasn't doing well. I understood the things that I was blacking out. Right. So in retrospect, like I was not high functioning at all, but, but to the world, I seemed like I was holding it all together. I was killing it. Right. I was reflecting also on the dopamine drive of sales. Mm-hmm. And you talk about this, you know, that this model sort of preys on our mental ill health and mm-hmm. offers dopamine hits to make us feel better. And you're a chemist, so you know all about this stuff. What role do you think that played for you? Oh, it's, I mean, it's huge. Love bombing is one of the things <laughs> that keeps people stuck. And love bombing is just, it's, it is what it sounds like. You know, you're showered with gifts, with praise. And this happens very quickly when you join an MLM. And this is by design because, again, most people never make money. And so there needs to be something to keep them in. And that's one thing that struck me initially is when I joined, 
it was all of a sudden I had all these friend requests and I had all these people like praising me on social media. And like, I hadn't been praised for anything other than being a mom for years. And when you get those accolades, you want more of it. And when you see what other accolades you could get, like, oh gosh, well, if I keep going, I could get this and a trip. I could get this and a purse. (laughs) I could get this. And there's this endless ladder that you can climb up. And so when this is done to you, you inevitably do this to other people. And you want to, because again, these are people that are your friends. Mm -hmm. You're targeting your friends. And so you want the best for your friend. Oh, I want my friend to join. I want the best for her. Oh, she's having a hard time. So I'm going to send her a bracelet because that's what someone did for me. I'm going to send her a personal development book because that's what someone did for me. And it just perpetuates this cycle of people staying in and that, you know, the sunk cost fallacy, Mm -hmm. like, well, I might as well keep grinding because maybe next month I'll make a sale or, or, you know, I have all my friends are in this now. I can't quit now. Right. Or someone like Kimberly liked my post and then shared it. So it means that I'm right visible. Yeah. You get these love bombs from like from corporate or from, again, the people at the top. And it's like, wow, you just feel special. I can't imagine there isn't a listener out there who doesn't relate to this at some level. And I think that in social media culture, we all do love bombing. I do love bombing as a way to build my influence. That was a big Mm -hmm. aha moment. I had so many aha moments reading this book because, you know, one of the big threads besides the sort of pushing people to, you know, seek the feel goods of the MLM to to make their mental health better or make them feel happier is also the sort of modern psychopop speech of leaning into your growth edge, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. leaning on your trauma as a way, leaning on on storytelling and trauma as a way to get people to pay attention. Like all these things that we also do in corporate America. Hmm. Well, then I think it's important to note too, because I've had people ask me, well, like, gosh, I, I congratulate people. I send thank you notes. I send gifts. Like, am I a love bomber? And I think the, what you have to ask yourself is, what am I trying to do here? Got it. Like, am I congratulating someone? Am I generally just happy for the job they did? Like, that's not love bombing. That is the thank you card. That's a congratulations. Love bombing is when you are specifically getting something out of it. Got it. Okay. And so, right, like the love bombing from nobody would be sending me a bracelet for not selling anything unless they had a motivation to keep me in that spot. Right. You know, because I haven't done anything. Like that's the thing is like, why would someone be tagging you on social media when you haven't actually sold anything? You haven't actually, it's because you have the potential to make them money. So that that is really the key is like, you know, love bombing is to keep you in this toxic system. And again, those stories, that, like you said, the trauma bonding that mm-hmm. goes on, it is done so that you feel closer to these people. So you feel like they are your friends, that you're in some sort of like sacred society. And that also it's kind of like collateral. Gosh, I I can't believe, you know, if I leave this or if I back away, like these people know all my secrets. What is it about the trauma storytelling and bonding that is so effective as a technique? Because you became sober and you weaved Your cancer diagnosis, that seemed to be a fabulous sales tool for you. And then Mm -hmm. eventually your sobriety story into part of your narrative as the ultimate success story at Rejuvenate. Right. 
Right. So an MLM will make any story a success story. I mean, every convention I went to, every retention event, I can't tell you the number of stories I heard like someone who became paralyzed and now they're talking about the company. Well, the company had nothing to do with it, but they're using that story so that you sit there, you feel you know, love for this person, mm-hmm. you feel appreciation for this person, you feel inspired by this person. And then in your brain, you know, that cognitive dissonance is like, oh, I'm at a rejuvenate convention and this company is what has done that, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it has nothing to do with it. So when I was in this place where, again, I got sober, I realized that I could not do a lot of the things that I was doing. I was like, oh God, <laughs> you know, I can't send these cold messages. This feels gross. This feels gross. This feels gross. Well, then I'm getting all of these more, you know, love bombs. Congratulations. Mm. We're so happy for you. And concurrently, like you're told in sobriety to be of service. Mm. And I was very much like I threw myself into AA. I threw myself into service and I was asked to share my story. And of course, I'm like, yeah, I want to be of service. And the other thing that happens you know, for a lot of people, especially for me, when you get sober and you're doing your amends and you're looking at all of these terrible, horrible things you've done, right? And you're trying to make amends for things and find your part in them. You just feel like, God, I just want to make good on this. And so to me, I'm like, if I share my story, like that's helping people, not realizing how duplicitous it is because it was just keeping people stuck in that that system. But I really felt like I was doing something good, like it felt good. And I think that's, you know, it's very much by design that the MLM will make any story fit their narrative. Now that you're out of that world, how do you use storytelling as a tool? And how do you, like, what's healthy storytelling? Because I think a lot of people in our culture are facing this. I think we 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 often feel that we're at a point where it's like, enough with the trauma narratives. Like, I can relate to you as a person without knowing your entire history. And I know that you're, you're a sexual abuse survivor. You, you have mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of powerful narrative that has made you you. But I, I'm just curious, like, how do you tell stories now? Yeah. So that's a really, I think that's a really great point because being in the MLM, I think, I don't, I never know how to say this, like inflated my ego, right? Well, sure. You um, got a car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was a car. And, you know, it gave me a platform, which I benefit from today. Mm-hmm. Sharing those stories made me realize that that is actually what I wanted to do. I wanted to go in recovery advocacy. I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to sell skincare anymore, right? I didn't want to recruit people into an MLM anymore. And I didn't necessarily know what that looked like, but it led me into the direction that I ended up going into, which is a very good thing. But it also, I think, inflated how important my story was. And, you know, I wrote my first book, which to me was very cathartic and it really aligned like who I was. Because again, when I got sober, I had to go back to, why did I take that first drink when I was 14? Like Mm -hmm. what happened to lead up to that? And why did I take all the ones going forward? And all of these things I was kind of running from my whole life. It was very cathartic to like put it all together and put it out there. And I had so much shame because I had so many secrets. And it was like very freeing to put them out there. But at the same time, you know, I, I wondered how much of myself I needed to put on display. 
I realized how much I'd put my kids on display. You know, I stopped posting so much about them on social media. I really changed my settings so that I wasn't public anymore. It was this interesting dichotomy of, you know, being glad that my story was out there and also wanting to like get quiet, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, to reclaim your boundaries. Yeah, yeah. As we close out, I want to talk a little bit about the language that you use around alcohol and substance use. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast you did with another sobriety coach, and you said that you started out in AA. I'm not sure that you're still in the AA world and that you no longer refer to yourself as an alcoholic. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm fine with whatever label. You know, you could call me an alcoholic. Like I, that doesn't, I'm, I'm not positive or negative about it. It's very neutral to me. Everyone has their own understanding about substance use. And I had my own understanding when I got started in sobriety. And, uh, you know, that has evolved over the years. I think AA is wonderful. I suggest it to people still. It saved my life. Mm. That's what was available to me at the time. I also think there is I don't want to say danger, but I think it's a slippery slope when it's this dogmatic all or nothing, one thing or no thing. There's some belief that AA is the only way and that if you ever leave, then you're destined to fall off the wagon and and drink again. Not unlike the MLM. Right, right. And and so it, you know, I, I threw myself into AA after the MLM and and I really try very hard to not throw myself 100% into anything. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of the reason. And part of the reason also is, you know, I would walk into an AA meeting tomorrow. I have no problem doing that. I would feel connected to all the people there. It's it's wonderful. I I never want to say anything bad about AA. It's just not something that I need anymore. And I think it's different for everybody. You know, there are people who learn that alcohol is you know, not helpful for anxiety and they just stop drinking and they never drink again. There are people who are very, very strongly physiologically addicted to it, who go to rehab, have to go to detox, all this stuff. And then they stay in AA the rest of their life because that works for them. Like, I I just have a belief that it's really whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. But for me, having that belief in the back of my mind that I need to do this or I'm going to fail is not healthy for me. Yeah, it's it's a tremendous amount of pressure and, and it's almost a perfectionistic belief because if you mess up at all, you feel like you've you've got to start again. You're at ground zero. You're a failure. Yeah. And, and that's something I think that is in the MLM structure, that whole meritocracy of if you do it, you can achieve anything you want. Well, that sounds great. But then who's to blame when you don't succeed in this 99.7% failure industry? You. <laughs> this is the same thing to be said for a program that tells you, do all of this, stay here, keep coming back, or your addiction's doing push-ups in the parking lot, right? That to me is not a healthy way to think about it. You know, if someone said to me like, hey, you're going to die tomorrow, w- w- you know, do you want to have a drink? I'd be like, Hell no. Like, why would I ruin my last day? Like, that's how I feel about alcohol. Wow. It offers me nothing. I know what happens <laughs> when I drink. I know that it offers no benefit to my life. So that's just not something I that that's helpful for me. That message is helpful for some people to stay in a program and, you know, that consistency. I, I don't know. I, I, I always have a hard time talking about it because I never want to discourage people yeah. from going into the rooms. But it's just not something I use anymore. 
I, I guess that's what's changed in my mindset is like, what does this offer me? What benefit do I get out of it? And I don't see any, you know what I mean? Like I've just gotten to that point where, gosh, I just don't see any benefit to it. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening. 